Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, where we delve into hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Seven months ago, a 22-year-old named Gina Amini died in a hospital in Tehran after being arrested for failing to properly wear her headscarf or hijab. The government claims her death was linked to a heart attack, but her family and much of the world believe Gina was beaten to death by the authorities. What's happened since her death has turned Iran on its head. Protests like this one at Tehran's University College of Fine Arts erupted throughout most of the country, a battle between two, quote, powerful and irreconcilable forces to, quote, Karim Sajadpur of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. One side of this battle is a modern population desperate for change, and the other an aging theocratic regime committed to preserving its power by whatever means necessary, Sajatpur says. But what is happening with this historic uprising seven months after it began, and can it bring lasting change? Joining me via Zoom from the United States to talk about what's happening are two renowned journalists who are deeply involved in Iran coverage. Farnos Fasihi of the New York Times and Azadeh Moshiri of the BBC. Hosha Madid. Thank you. Thank you. So Azadeh, I'm going to start with you. Where do things stand with the protests? I mean, when you're looking at it from the outside, one gets the sense that there are fewer of them these days. Is that in fact the case? That's the key question that I get all the time. And part of that is because we're so used to looking at those big pictures, those images, those videos we saw in September, October, November of these mass protests of these videos that were broadcast on channels like BBC News every single day. And it's true, we're not seeing those. And I'm keenly aware of that as a broadcaster, because uh, when I want to highlight what's going on in Iran, pictures, images are everything. Protests are still going on. They are. Are they happening at the scale that they were back in those days? Probably not. Uh, But the context is really important to understand. One, Iran was already a country that suffered internet blackouts. It's a country with censorship. And so those images are extremely hard to grab. You can speak to people in the country, but getting a real accurate sense of how widespread protests are can be difficult. But it's also a very different climate right now to what it was back then. Back then, people were out on the streets every day and the Islamic Republic didn't quite know how to respond to it. They didn't know whether a crackdown uh, would make things worse, but they've certainly made their decision now. And in the last few months, the response has been a brutal crackdown executions that number more than 570 in the past year. This year alone, there were 232. And while we know that there were about four protesters executed in December and and January, that is going to instill a lot of fear. And that's what the Islamic Republic wants. And so every single act of defiance that we do see, there were some uh, this month uh, in Isfahan, the Baluch community still comes out every Friday. When those protests do happen, it takes even more strength and courage than it did back then. So, of course, even if we don't see that kind of widespread movement, each protest act that we do see carries even more weight. Well, as we talk about the crackdown, Farnas, let me ask you, why do you think Iranian authorities and the Islamic Republic's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, haven't made concessions or otherwise tried to tamp down public anger? Or is it too little too late? 
This has been the pattern of the Islamic Republic. And from everything that we hear, Mr. Khamenei's uh, firm belief that if you give an inch, then they're going to want more. He's never known to make any concessions. I mean, if we look at sort of the political history of his tenure as supreme leader, every time that there was a confrontation with the people or a demand of the people, he has doubled down. We saw this with the 2009 uh, contested election with former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and uh, opponent Mir Hossein Mousavi, where there were millions of people on the streets. And he came out at the Friday prayer and said that uh, the election results were valid and they brutally cracked that down as well. We've seen this pattern of protest. We saw it with the downing of the Ukrainian flight by Revolutionary Guards missiles and the demand for a just prosecution of people involved, yet we've never seen him make a concession. And I think that the lesson that the Islamic Republic took away from the revolution against the Shah was that once you make a concession, then the floodgates open and it will take the whole system down. The other uh, important thing is now what concession could he possibly make? The days for trying to appease the public anger and uh, the demands of the public by making changes in the law or making reforms here and there appear to be over. Uh, The way that the protests have evolved over the years is it's no longer about we want a reformist candidate or we want this presidential candidate, that candidate. People are very clearly demanding for an end to the Islamic Republic. They want Khamenei and everybody else to go away. They want wholesale change. Uh, so any concessions that they make at this time will be too little too late. Azadeh, is this uprising really about wearing hijab? I mean, obviously, that's what sparked it was the death of Miss Amini, which we talked about in the introduction. But if the government said tomorrow, OK, women can go without headscarves, they don't have to wear manteaus or the, you know, the overcoats anymore, would that end the protests? We're way past that. Yes, of course, the hijab was at the center of this. And these are female-led protests. But the hijab is something that the Islamic Republic is very tied to because it's a really key symbol of the Islamic Republic. It's when the country started physically looking different after the Islamic Revolution in 1979. And so the idea of protesting the hijab is also protesting the core ideology of the Islamic Republic. And so it's not just about electoral malfeasance or corruption, uh, like in 2009, or it's not just about the uh, economic issues or inadequacies they see in the government. It's really about the ideology in the Islamic Republic itself. And so that's why even before these protests actually began in September, we've been paying attention to the issue of the hijab then, but the government had started noticing that women were becoming more lax about the hijab, showing a little bit more hair on the streets, and they'd already started enforcing more police measures, more patrols to make sure that they could enforce that strict dress code. And because it's that important to them, it isn't just about the hijab. And that's why these concessions, that sort of idea of saying, okay, this is the one thing uh, we won't make mandatory anymore. It's so far gone that they know that's not the solution here uh, for them to maintain this authoritarian regime. Farnaz Jun, you've covered protests in Iran for a long time. How do these demonstrations in the wake of Gina Amini's death differ from those earlier ones that you used to cover? Well, I think the big difference that we uh, saw this time is the clear demand of the protesters 
for an end to the Islamic Republic. As I mentioned, the protesters in 2009 and in 2019 even, and 2016, uh, were either around contesting an election or demands within the framework of the Islamic Republic, right? They wanted a candidate that was within the system, or they were protesting economic hardships or the increase of the price of gas. So we've seen the cause being something that's within the system. But this time around, I think the demand was very, very clear. We didn't hear any uh, names of any political opponents uh, being chanted by the people. They really wanted, you know, very clear women, life, freedom, which has become sort of the battle cry of this revolution, borrowed from a Kurdish protest slang uh, that really kind of embodies the message that women's rights are central to uh, freedom and democracy. And as Azadeh was pointing out, these protests were sparked by the hijab, but very quickly they moved on to be about much more. The other thing I think that's important in these protests we've seen is that the young people have been at the forefront. Women have been really uh, leading. They've been very much central to this movement. And they've lost their fears, Saraya. Even the, the Basijis, even the security forces know that uh, their methods of cracking down and beating and shooting at people are not working anymore. We saw many, many videos of the crowd actually turning on uh, the security forces and not easily retreating. So I think the demand for uh, an end to the Islamic Republic, having youth and women leading the protests and uh, the fact that they've lost their fear. Uh, these are, I think, the big three takeaways from the movement currently. Well, certainly earth shattering in Iran or Iran shattering as the case might be. But the United States and Europe, while expressing solidarity with these protesters, hasn't really done much else that's been super tangible. Azadeh, what impact has this Western reaction or inaction, as some might call it, had on the protests? There has been a lot of hesitation, it's true, when it comes to countries in terms of how they can respond. And then that dates back to the Obama administration as well, because there is a concern that the West has that when they take forceful action in Iran, that perhaps it could be twisted and fit into the Islamic Republic's narrative that these aren't protests led by the people, but by foreign agents, which is not the case. And yet it's still a narrative that they try to push. And the Western allies tend to be quite sensitive of that. And also, just to add into the mix, you have the fact that uh, the Iran nuclear deal is still something that's being pursued by Europe and by the United States. Iran has increased its uranium enrichment past that 60% figure that is uh, worrying global leaders. And so they're also taking all of that into account. So, you know, when it comes to the question of how has that actually affected the protests, it hasn't dampened it. This was always, you know, people led. Uh, and as Farinas mentioned there, they don't have any fear anymore. They're going to keep pushing for what they believe is right and what uh, they deserve, which is basic human rights. But when they're calling on, on leaders, and some do, to, for example, designate uh, the IRGC as terrorists, uh, when they're calling on world leaders to show support, they do say they need it. You know, you have protesters who will, will put out videos saying, we need you to show your support. And uh, it's just not as simple as that for, for some of these world leaders. You know, of course, I'm a BBC journalist. I take my role in, in public service very seriously. And so when it comes to impartiality, I, I can't preach a solution. And I'm really glad I, I can't because the fact is it's not an easy solution. There are big pros and cons to all these decisions.
Well, one of the notable things that did happen in the West was a Grammy being awarded to Shervin Hajipur for his ballad that has become the anthem of the uprising. Called Baroya, which means four in Farsi, it uses real tweets by young Iranians to paint their frustrations and oppressed existence. It also landed the 26-year-old musician in jail. Farnas, what has happened to Shervin since then? Do you have any updates that you can share with us? Shervin has, uh, has been forced into silence in terms of continuing with his music after his song Baraye uh, went viral. I mean, it really became the anthem of this uprising. For months and months everywhere, you saw Iranians congregating, uh, whether it was protests or house parties or, um, you know, hikes. Wherever they were, they were... Uh, reciting Baraya together. It, it was very profound because it was really, it was like a collective song, you know, written collectively. The lyrics were sort of collectively written by Iranians because, as you mentioned, they were based on tweets. So Shervin was, uh, has been uh, laying low since his arrest. He's posted, I think, one or two photos of himself since the Grammy saying he won and sort of thanking his fans and uh, I think another one for his birthday, but we really haven't seen him. Uh, we certainly haven't heard him performing or anything. Uh, the regime understands his power and his pull, particularly with young people. And, uh, you know, we know that the way they interrogate people, we know that they've probably ordered him into silence. You know, he wasn't even able to pick up his Grammy at the ceremony. He wasn't allowed to leave. Well, he still faces a court case, I think, right? Or was that resolved? Correct. Yes, um, we, we don't we don't have enough. We know that he had a pending court case at uh, the Revolutionary Court and he was briefly detained. Uh, but that case is pending. I don't think that that's been resolved yet. Uh, Farnas, you indicated you wanted to add something more about uh, the nuclear deal, about Western hesitation. So uh, why don't you tell us what you wanted to say there? Well, the state of the nuclear deal is still unresolved. After President Trump exited the deal and imposed sanctions, Iran for about a year, they honored the deal. And after that, they started increasing uh, the enrichment of uranium. Under the nuclear deal, enrichment was capped at 3%, and now they're at 60%. Uh, the International Atomic Agency, which inspects Iran's nuclear facilities and has um, surveillance videos, said recently that uh, Iran has enough of a stockpile of enriched uranium that it could make a nuclear weapon if it chose to. Uh, there are no indications yet that Iran has crossed the threshold of wanting to be a nuclear uh, state, but it's certainly crossed the threshold of being uh, a nuclear capable state if it decides. And this puts the West in a bind because, uh, you know, they've indicated they don't want war with Iran. Tough economic sanctions that target oil and energy and banking transactions have uh, depleted the economy, but they haven't really been effective in terms of stopping Iran's nuclear program. The West is still very much hoping that they can resolve this through a deal. And because of that, I think they're keeping a channel of uh, diplomacy open with Iran. Well, is that working in reverse as well? I mean, Azadeh, did you get the sense that Iran is perhaps like, OK, we'll go ahead and make a deal in order to sort of facilitate this lack of reaction to what's happening uh, with the protests? Yes, I mean, the foreign minister in Iran has definitely put out some positive signals about the way that these talks are going with the EU. And they've said that they're, they're having indirect talks with the United States as well. 
And so they certainly want to keep that conversation going because to your point, they do know that as long as these negotiations are going on, that the US and Western allies in Europe uh, do have their hands tied in some ways when it comes to how forceful they can be with a reaction. You know, I certainly think that part of the reason that the EU, the European Union, is really hesitating in designating the IOGC a terrorist and uh, terrorist organization and joining the United States uh, in that designation is because of these negotiations, because they have huge numbers of Iranian communities, diasporas in their own countries, Germany, for example, who are calling on them to give that designation, and yet they keep bulking at it. The EU foreign policy chief has been very careful uh, with his language there. Uh, And on top of it, I think it's also that there is a threat that they're genuinely concerned about. You know, traces of uranium were found in three old but undeclared nuclear sites. You have cameras in Natanz, one of the key nuclear sites that was taken down, that that they're not getting those feeds to be able to verify their nuclear activity. And so, of course, it's a lot more complex than just deciding to pursue the deal or not. They feel like something needs to be done. But you get back to that debate that was happening under the Obama administration, which is, should you be dealing with a government, a regime uh, that is not respecting human rights? Do human rights need to be part of that discussion? And that question is even bigger now that you have not only these widespread protests, but real forceful suppression and oppression in that country. Uh, Speaking of suppression, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was also going to add that Iran has shifted its foreign policy away from the West and toward East. It's made an alliance, very strong alliance with Russia and China. And it sort of put itself in the anti-Western sort of power dynamic of the world. China buys Iran's oil, helps it evade sanctions and helps the Islamic Republic stay afloat economically. And Russia is a critical security partner. And Iran is now providing drones uh, to Russia to use in the Ukraine war. And they were strategic partners also in the war in Syria. Uh, So, you know, Iran has sort of found a way to fill that gap of not having closer relations with the West or economic ties with the West by pivoting East. And we recently saw that the rapprochement between Saudi and Iran was brokered by China, which also suggests that the U.S.'s influence in the Middle East is decreasing and that China is taking a much uh, bigger role. And, uh, you know, countries, I mean, I also cover the UN and I hear from Middle Eastern countries, African countries, that an alliance with China is very attractive because China is a reliable partner economically and it never brings up human rights. It never (laughs) meddles, it really meddles and tells you what to do. So there- I think there's uh, a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the issue of human rights uh, has always been part of, you know, the posture of, of the U.S. and Europe. And because of what's happening in Iran, that's even become uh, more central to, OK, if you're dealing with Iran, can human rights be also a part of that dynamic? We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll talk more about the protests in Iran. Stay tuned to Common Ground Berlin. Hi there. Here's Diok Pirs. I'm the host of Europe Talks Solidarity. Is Gen Z transforming the way solidarity is lived in Europe? How can cities be transformed into inclusive spaces? What can we learn from local initiatives about solidarity? How can international solidarity be done in a responsible and sustainable way? 
there are just a few questions we will be approaching on Season 2 of Europe Talk Solidarity soon. Join me for all of that and more. Produced by Salto European Solidarity Course Research Center. Till then. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground Berlin. And I'm Dina El Sayed, Common Ground Berlin's senior producer. We are bringing you a lot more variety these days in our weekly podcast. If you like deep dive interviews, we've got them. Like with Anna Winger, the American Berlin-based creator of the Netflix hits Unorthodox and Transatlantic. I always say that Berlin happened to me. You know, I wouldn't have chosen it, but it's been such a rich source of creative life for my work, for my imagination. Or if you enjoy long-form storytelling, take a listen to our episode on American football in Germany. We also offer lively talk shows that deepen your knowledge of important issues in Germany and beyond. For me, it was really, really important to have an abortion pills because I already felt like my life is so out of my hands, like there's so many laws and people who feel like they are ruling over me now. So check out new Common Ground Berlin episodes on Mondays wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and we're talking about the major protests across Iran after the arrest and death of Gina Amini last fall in the Iranian capital, Tehran. Joining me for this discussion via Zoom from Washington is Azadeh Mushiri of the BBC, and from New York, Arnaz Fasihi of the New York Times. Well, we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the Western and Iranian relations, but I also want to talk about another important or arguably important component of which we are arguably a part, and that's the Iranian diaspora. Um, mm -hmm. Outside of Iran, the Iranian opposition has tried and failed to come together. Right. The latest implosion was detailed in an Atlantic Council article by Arash Azizi about the unraveling of a promising group that included the former Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi, Nobel mm. laureate uh, Shirin Ebadi, U.S.-based actors Nazanin Bunyadi and Golshifte Farahani, and Ali Karimi, who is a soccer legend and anti-regime activist who's based here in Germany. What impact do each of you think this failure to come together is having on the protests? Or do people in Iran even care about what the Iranian diaspora has to say? Well, the Iranian diaspora came together in terms of responding to the protests in Iran and rallying behind the women life freedom movement. And we saw uh, massive protests in uh, in the U.S., in L.A., in Washington, in Berlin, in, in France, and we saw them really come together. One thing is clear that the Iranian diaspora wants to show its solidarity with the people of Iran and, and help elevate their cause, but it kind of stopped at that. Uh, they haven't figured out how to take it from sentimental solidarity or, or protest to a, a level where actually an effective opposition or an opposition leader could come into place, whether uh, guiding or helping or influencing things on the ground or influencing things outside. Unfortunately, the diaspora has also been extremely divided and kind of like very not engaged in civic discourse. I think that both uh, some of these opposition leaders that you mentioned, their supporters, uh, certainly, and sort of the cyber trolls that are uh, on Twitter and online, 
their approach to criticism, their approach to anybody who uh, disagrees with them, including journalists and academics and whatnot, has been to sort of really deploy undemocratic and very disconcerting um, behavior of trolling, smearing, harassing, death threats, rape threats. I mean, I've been a subject of uh, vicious attacks online by uh, some of the opposition activists and their supporters that really mirror the same way that the Islamic Republic trolls behave. And that's disturbing. So while, uh, sure, there's disagreements uh, within any opposition group, but the thing that's disturbing, and I think Iranians inside Iran are very worried about, is that the way that these opposition groups are interacting with each other and the way that they're interacting with the sort of larger community at large uh, has not been democratic. Uh, has not been civil. And it sort of relied on the same methodology of smearing, harassing, attacking, uh, violent threats. And that's not the direction that people inside Iran really want to go. Azadeh, what are your, go ahead. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say picking up on that, you know, threats of violence, uh, aggression, any form of, you know, sort of cyberbullying, of course, that's unacceptable. And and Farinos, I'm sorry to hear that you went through that, and I know you have. But I think it's also just so indicative of what's going on here, which is that passions are running really high. It's still not okay, it's unacceptable, but aside from the actual threats of violence and, and that sort of behavior, when it comes to the fact that uh, so many factions of the Iranian diaspora are finding it difficult to all come together, the context there is that they feel like, first off, this is a life and death matter, which it is in Iran for many. And many of them feel like they've been screaming at the top of their lungs for the world to pay attention and the world hasn't been and that this is their moment and that they have to push this through. And they feel like uh, this is their chance for many of them who haven't been able to go back to their homeland in decades. Some of them haven't been able to see their families in decades. Uh, it's a chance for them to finally potentially have a chance at gaining what they've been fighting for for so long. So unfortunately, it means that when it comes to the ways that they can do that, the solution to this, to actual uh, to an actual political solution, it's becoming very difficult to figure out what that is. And they're clashing. And I think the the example you you mentioned about the council and the, the group that they were trying to form there is very apt. It was people with incredible intentions, good meaning intentions, not being able to necessarily come to a single uh, solution they could all agree on. But I think, of course, it, it's crucial that when you're you're looking at something as complex as this, uh, the infighting isn't helpful. It obviously isn't. And and when it gets even more violent than that, like what some of the people, my colleagues at BBC Persian have had to deal with, it's also unacceptable. But I think one question I do often when I, if I have a, a, an Iranian in the diaspora on my program, or, uh, you know, an actress in Hollywood who is an Iranian, but also an advocate and an activist, I always ask, people say you're out of the country and that you're out of touch and that perhaps you're not the one to speak for the people in Iran. And, you know, what they say to me, and I think it's really fair and it's valid, it's I care and I'm doing the best I can. For many of them, they don't have the option to go back to Iran. And that doesn't mean that their voice should be any less legitimate than others. Well, well I think that um, I think that. Okay, I'll let you have the final word, and then we got to move oh, on because we're going to. Okay, no, no, go ahead, Fardas. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, being passionate or caring about what's happening inside Iran doesn't justify 
smearing, harassing, cyberbullying, and violent death threats and rape threats, and the behavior that we've seen by some of the opposition, some activists or some supporters or some cyber trolls. And some of the people who are actually doing this with their own names on Twitter and particularly targeting women, women journalists, women activists, women in academia which is very ironic because this is a women's-led movement, women's rights is at center of it, but women are also their target. So I don't think that we can uh, just say people are passionate and people care, but there comes, if you're taking a public profile or if you're taking a leadership role, responsibility comes with that. And also you have to project a level of civil discourse and uh, you know, sort of tolerance for uh, other views. And I think the disappointing thing for many Iranians inside Iran who are really risking their lives and getting arrested and taking bullets is to see the behavior of these people outside of Iran. Sorry, yeah. Sor- Soraya, John, I just need to add one thing. Go and ahead, go Tharnas, ahead. Tharnas, I, I completely agree. Passions running high is never an excuse for someone like you or my colleagues at BBC Persian being harassed or intimidated. You know, I have colleagues who've had to go dark online, stop their work for periods because of the threats that they faced. So that's point blank, you know, totally agreed. And of course, uh, people in Iran are actually risking their lives. That's also absolutely true. I also want us to highlight what the Iranian diaspora has achieved. And part of the reason that we've seen so much attention by this from politicians isn't just because of the media. It's not just because of our coverage. It's the fact that you've had historic protests in Germany, for example, where uh, you know tens of thousands of Iranians from the diaspora have come out protesting. It's because they're constantly calling members of the European Parliament, members of Parliament in their own countries, uh, Congress people in the US. They're constantly calling and calling out for change and for solutions that they think could be the right move, whether it's sanctions or anything else. And so I do think that they are also genuinely having an impact. I know that at the BBC, one of the only reasons that sometimes I can cover Iran on a given day is because the diaspora is creating some sort of movement, is protesting. So I don't want us to just paint them as uh, this sort of disorganized lot that are disagreeing with each other, they are actually also achieving something for the people of Iran. It's not on the scale of risking their lives and facing bullets uh, the way the women in Iran are, but they're still doing something. Much of our information about what's happening in Iran comes from social media videos. Like this one recently on Twitter where women were filmed burning their headscarves. Farnas, how are Iranians getting the word out to the world or each other about what's happening, given the strict Internet controls by the government that you and I have experienced reporting there? Iranians are extremely tech savvy. Uh, Most of the young people know how to operate around the restrictions through VPN. And they've become really very efficient in their citizen sort of journalism practices of videotaping anything that they see on the street from sometimes a scene of a woman without hijab dancing on the metro to uh, actual clashes and violence and trying to get that online. And they understand the power of these videos. The way that they communicate with one another, usually social media, Instagram is huge in Iran. It's the way for business, for consuming news, for communicating with each other. Everyone's on Instagram. Twitter is popular, but not really for, you know, average ordinary people. Twitter is mostly for people who are in politics or activists and whatnot. And then WhatsApp is also very popular, but it hasn't really been 
um, easy to reach people. For me, as a journalist who can't travel to Iran, they won't allow me to report from the ground. I really rely on these videos as a glimpse into sort of what's happening, small windows into what's happening. One of the challenges that I have, particularly working for the New York Times, where our you know the reporting bar is very high, we have to. Uh, I can't just take the videos and write a story based on the videos. I actually have to go find people, interview witnesses to verify what's happening and, and tell me firsthand what they've seen. And because of the uh, restrictions uh, on the Internet and because of the way that some of these apps uh, were blocked during the protests, reporting would take longer than if I could just pick up the phone and call somebody. I often had to stay up really late uh, because VPNs worked better very early in the morning in Iran. So oh my, my chances gosh. of finding people were were better if I, I called them sort of at like 2 a.m. my time. So we adjust sort of with the way that people can uh, communicate safely. So the government isn't able to completely silence the no. population or stop the word from getting out. No, it's they play a game of whack-a-mole. They try. They've done everything from blocking the apps to blocking VPNs to actually, you know, in 2019, they unplugged Iran from the uh, world Internet. They unplugged the Internet for a week. But none of that works because, uh, you know, Iran's kind of not North Korea. People are online, they're engaged and uh, they shop online. They, you know, they have their own version of Uber uh, they need the Internet to function. So, yeah, they can't really unplug. Well, we need to uh, slowly wrap it up. So let me just ask one final question uh, to each of you. I mean, both of you are Western journalists with Iranian roots like myself. Farnaz, you, like me, were born before the revolution that led to the creation of the Islamic Republic, while Azadeh, you have only known Iran <laughs> as an Islamic Republic in your lifetime. What do each of you see Iran evolving into down the road? Would it be into a monarchy, which is what Farnaz and I experienced as young children, a secular democratic republic? or a more secular Islamic Republic or the same IRI as exists now? Do you want me to begin? Go ahead. Who wants to start? It's a question. question. (laughs) It is. And you have one minute each to answer it. Yes. (laughs) Well, well, the main thing I'm going to say is I'm not preaching a solution or pushing for one. I'm hiding again behind my BBC impartiality, which I hold very, very dear. And I'm again, I'm glad because, you know, who are we to predict what is going to happen? You know, I think that's all down to the people of Iran and the tools that they're given to fight for their basic rights. You know, in terms of what I would speculate is likely to happen, not what I'm pushing for, it's probably not going to be a monarchy. I think, you know, what the Iranian people are looking for, what they're calling for is change uh, and they want to move forward. Now, whether you have you know, uh, the former members of the monarchy or, or, you know, are the monarchists part of the solution, whether you uh, have them come together with other groups as they tried recently, as Soraya just mentioned, anything is possible. But, you know, the big question for me, because I, I, you know, can't go to Iran, is that one day Iran does become a country where someone like me, someone uh, like my colleagues at BBC Persian, everyone I know who isn't able to go back can and can do so safely. And I'd like to hope that that will happen one day. Arnaz, final word to you. What what republic do you think it's or what kind of country or government is it going to evolve into? I think it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in uh, in Iran. Iran has a way of really surprising even the best of Iran watchers. 
But from everything that I hear from my interviews with uh, Iranians of all ages and in different parts of Iran is that they're very clear that they want a secular democracy, that they feel like this experiment with a theocracy for 43 years uh, has shown that religion and politics and religion and state have to be separate, uh, that if people have private faith, that shouldn't really be forced upon the population or, or be involved in the way that the country is ruled. So we see it by the way that you know people behave or the way that they uh, observe different things, that the population is getting more secular. They certainly want democracy. I think one of the main uh, slogans that people chant in the protests is, we don't want a king, we don't want a supreme leader, we want democracy. Nashah Mikhail Narahbar, democracy, that's one of the things that they're saying. So I think that if Iranian people have their way, if their true desires and true aspirations bear fruit, they will want uh, and they hope for a secular democracy. But as you and I also know Saraya from our many years of covering wars and uprisings and uh, regime changes in the Middle East, there are many, many dynamics at play and predicting the end game of what will come out of it is very difficult because certainly we've seen, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but certainly we've seen in the Middle East and in, in Iran's you know, immediate neighborhood in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Libya, and in Egypt, many of those same uh, movements uh, didn't lead to the freedom and democracy that uh, the people hoped. But if we were to say, what do Iranians really want? I think the majority of Iranians want a secular democracy. Thank you, Farnas Fasihi and Azadeh Mushiri for this insightful conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Common Ground Berlin is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partner is the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and I'm Soraya Serhati-Nelson. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. <laughs>